Today we're going to be talking about the Great Depression uh, and the New Deal. Now, the Great Depression, which uh, began on October 29th, 1929, with Black Tuesday, the stock market crash, was like a swift and unstoppable virus. I think you have to think of it that way, almost in medical terms. It wiped out a decade of economic prosperity in about a month and a half. In other words, 10 years, almost 10 years of sustained economic growth down the drain in six weeks. The value of America's stocks fell $14 billion the day of the crash, uh, uh, October 29, 1929, and by the end of that year had halved in value since the onset of the crash. In other words, uh, America's stock values had dropped by about 50% just from late October until January 1st, 1930. By 1932, the low ebb of the Depression, stocks had lost yet another 30% uh, in their value, and industrial production had been cut in half. New investment was at a standstill. By 1932, to start a new business in this kind of atmosphere was an act of insanity. There was $16 billion of new investment in 1929, and one billion brave souls indeed by 1932. 100,000 businesses go bankrupt between 1929 and 1932. And thousands of banks, many with ordinary Americans' life savings, shut their doors. And to put a more human face on the Depression, unemployment had risen by 1932 to 25%. But that's 35% if you just counted non-farm workers, people who are not working uh, on farms. That means one out of every three Americans. If you think about this class, that's about, uh, uh, oh, I'd say 12, 12 of you would be completely out of work, and probably another 12 to 15 of you would be underemployed, employed but uh, underemployed. And... As bad as the economic numbers were, and obviously they were horrible, the psychological effect on Americans, the humiliation, the shame, and the fear, may have been even worse. Everyone who was alive during the Great Depression has searing memories of that time, memories that would haunt them for the rest of their lives. Uh, for me, it was my parents. For you, it might be your grandparents, or maybe even at this point, uh, great-grandparents. My mother, who was a young girl growing up in New York City during the, uh, during the 1930s, used to talk about seeing her friends evicted with their families, of course, from their apartments, with all their belongings dumped right out on the street with absolutely nowhere to go and no one to help them. When you go through a time like that, it scars you, it makes you afraid, it makes you worried for the rest of your life, even if you survive it even if times get better. You're always waiting for the landlord's knock on the door, for the other shoe to drop, even if you eventually become wealthy. Now, perhaps some of you have heard of the great comedian Jackie Gleason, the creator of the classic TV series The Honeymooners, which, except for Seinfeld, I think is the funniest sitcom of all time. Who's ever seen The Honeymooners? Okay, it's very funny. I think it's very funny, in a 1950s sort of way. Who's ever heard of Jackie Gleason? See, this is a generational thing, because my generation, everybody would have heard of Jackie Gleason. He's a big, fat guy. Now, I'm talking about Jackie Gleason here because he was, because he was the producer of The Honeymooners, as well as the guy who starred in it, uh, uh, by the late 1950s, uh, he became a very rich man. Uh, a millionaire many, many times over. And he became a multimillionaire and stayed that way for the rest of his life. But I read somewhere that Jackie Gleason kept $1,500 in cash and a change of clothes in a locker in Jersey City, New Jersey, in a storage facility in Jersey City, New Jersey, for the rest of his life. Why? Because he grew up during the Depression, and he never trusted his success. No matter how rich he got, part of him was a poor, scared kid growing up in the 1930s, worrying how he and his mother, his widowed mother, were going to get through the week and get through the next week. He always felt there'd be a chance that he'd be back there somehow 
and he wanted to be prepared. So $1,500 and a change of clothes in a storage facility in Jersey City, New Jersey. That's what the Depression did to people, even people who went on to become great successes. The human cost may have been even greater than the economic cost of the Depression. So, why did it happen? What caused the Great Depression? Well, for starters, you can blame it on the greed and the arrogance of the American people, both big businessmen and average citizens, who bid stock prices up to irrational levels in their hopes for quick profits. And, even worse, didn't even use their own money to buy these stocks, buying instead on margin, meaning only a percentage of the price down, sometimes as little as 10% of the price down, and the rest borrowed from brokers or from banks who would be repaid out of the profits which these investors assumed would come, just as these profits had come throughout most of the 1920s. But in October 1929, they were wrong, because this time, prices began to fall. And I think there's some resemblance here between the stock market crash and our uh, present subprime loan uh, fiasco, again, with people not using their own money to, uh, uh, to, to buy houses whose value they assumed would rise. I think uh, real estate, in a sense, is, like, is today like stocks were uh, in, in 1929. And, of course, when stock prices fell in uh, the wake of Black Tuesday uh, in 1929, uh, investors were ruined because they couldn't pay the purchase price of the stock they had ostensibly bought. These prices were now being demanded by the banks and the brokerage houses. And when this money was not forthcoming, they went out of business in a cycle of debts that couldn't be paid, and eventually industrial and consumer products that couldn't be bought because there was no money. So the companies that made them, the consumer products, went out of business. And, of course, hundreds of thousands of ordinary Americans, like the people that we read about in the Bailey and Kennedy book for today, lost their jobs. So the economic root of the Great Depression, then, was overproduction and underconsumption. Industry was turning out products and still capable of turning out products, but nobody had the money to buy the products. Prices were dropping, which normally you might think is a good thing, but that became a problem because wages were dropping or becoming non-existent as well. So the riddle here is how to get both of them up, how to match production and consumption, and thus end the Depression. Well, Americans struggled for 10 years after 1929 to solve this simply stated but maddeningly, maddeningly difficult problem to match production to consumption, production levels to consumption levels. So this then is the specific reason that the uh, Great Depression started, but why did it continue the way it did? Well, the economic policies of the government and of the president during the first years of the Depression, Herbert Hoover, uh, who was president from 1929 to 1933, had a lot to do with continuing and exacerbating the Depression. Now, Herbert Hoover was a self-made man. He was born poor, he was an orphan, worked his way up to becoming a multimillionaire. He believed that direct government assistance to the poor was a mistake because it sapped their initiative and self-reliance, and because it led to government bureaucratic control of private enterprise and an end to individual liberty, individual freedom in America. Now, Herbert Hoover probably would have been an excellent president in almost any other era of American history. I've always felt that he had the best resume uh, uh, of any incoming president, uh, 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 a self-made uh, mining executive, engineer and mining executive, millionaire, uh, in charge of food distribution during and after World War I, very, very successful, very successful Secretary of Commerce in the uh, uh, Calvin Coolidge uh, presidency, uh, for, uh, and, and Harding and Coolidge from 1921 to 1929. I mean, this guy had a really, really good resume, and I think he would have been a great president in almost any other era, but not this one. Hoover refused to aid poor and unemployed Americans directly during the years of his presidency, 29 to 33, uh, which of course coincided with the worst years of the Depression. 
even while Hoover was, through his Reconstruction Finance Corporation, or RFC, giving direct aid to ailing banks and ailing businesses, something that was not lost on the average American unemployed uh, 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 citizen. Uh, the idea that he's giving what they would consider handouts to banks and businesses, but not to individual Americans. Hoover's idea here was that the, 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 uh, uh, the recovery could trickle down, basically, from uh, uh, banks and businesses recovering, and that would trickle down and lift everyone in the, uh, in the economy. It didn't work. Hoover also, through his appointees to the Federal Reserve Board, did exactly what you shouldn't do in a period of falling prices, of what we call deflation, not inflation, deflation, falling prices. He constricted the money supply. He cut off the money supply and raised interest rates, making credit for businesses more difficult to obtain instead of the opposite. Where was Federal Reserve Chair uh, Alan Greenspan, who became legendary for his effectiveness in the 80s, 90s, and early part of this century when you needed him? The Federal Reserve, incidentally, is going to be meeting tomorrow and Wednesday uh, to basically make a similar decision. Not that we're in a depression yet, but should they raise or lower interest rates in terms of what's going on in the economy? There's, uh, there's some talk that they're going to lower interest rates, which is probably what should have happened during the Hoover administration. Now, businesses, not to mention consumers, need money, need a money supply to spend and to invest and to pay their debts with. Money could have given people the ability to buy what businesses were producing. And another parallel to today, uh, uh, President Bush's economic stimulus package proposes to give tax rebates, tax checks to many Americans, money in their pockets that hopefully they will spend. So that's the idea. That's not what Hoover was doing. He was doing the opposite. So Hoover's mistake during 1929 and 1933 was worrying about production and prices rather than consumption, as we shall see by the time of his second New Deal in 1935, which I'll discuss, Franklin D. Roosevelt, his successor, had stopped making this mistake. And in addition, these lowered, uh, these constricted interest rates, meaning these raised interest rates during the Hoover administration, caused a series of bank failures in Germany and then all over Europe. Since European banks relied on this point for American banks, or on American banks, for credit. Now, in this atmosphere, raising tariff rates was probably the worst thing you could do. But with Hoover's support, this is exactly what the Republican Congress did in 1930 in the Hawley-Smoot tariff, which established the highest rates in history in an ill-advised attempt to protect American businesses. Now, who's heard of the, 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 the Smoot-Hawley tariff? Only, only two of you. That's, that's actu actually amazing. Who's seen Ferris Bueller? Remember the Ben Stein scene? He's talking about the, the Smooley, the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the Smooley, uh, Smooley, Smoot-Hawley tariff that raised interest rates. Anybody see him last year? Just a couple of you. I, I actually got to hang out with him. He is, a, he is a great guy. And he loved Lawrence. He was mentioning Lawrence in, uh, his, te in, in his magazine articles and uh, television commentaries for weeks afterwards. I'm actually still in contact with him. He says he wants to come back here and teach for a, for a term, which I think would be the coolest thing. But that's where the, uh, the, uh, the fame of the Smoot-Hawley tariff, I think, derives. Uh, not so much from what it did in 1930, but for the fame that it got through the Ferris Bueller movie. Now, not surprisingly, the Smoot-Hawley tariff of 1930 didn't work, uh, as European nations retaliated for our, or retaliated to our higher uh, tariff rates by raising their tariffs to to keep out American goods. And suddenly, there were no markets for American goods, either foreign or domestic. And finally exacerbating the Depression. And again, the Depression is not Herbert Hoover's fault, but what happens afterwards he has to take responsibility for, uh, was the fact that thanks to the Republican tax cut of 1926, which occurred in 26 in the Coolidge administration, there was now a concentration of wealth in the top 20% of the American population. 
Now, since this meant that the middle class and working class had less money, they spent less, especially on consumer goods. So there continued to be no buyers for the producers of American industry. The relatively small number of rich Americans could only spend so much. What the nation needed, what the nation was not getting, was a broad-based level of spending by the American public that would create broad-based demand for the products of American industry. So, this is where the nation stood on March 4th, 1933, as it prepared to inaugurate a new president, Franklin D. Roosevelt, a Democrat who had beaten the discredited Herbert Hoover in the presidential election of 1932, largely because he wasn't Herbert Hoover. Now, FDR was a patrician from New York's Hudson River Valley, uh, uh, about uh, an hour and a half north of New York City, but truly a different world. Uh, an ironic contrast to the poor boy made good, Herbert Hoover. The American public knew comparatively little about FDR when he took office, except that he wasn't Herbert Hoover. And Roosevelt's presidential campaign had told them comparatively little about what he planned to do to end the Depression. On March 4th, 1933, as FDR raised his hand to take the oath of office as the nation's 32nd president, the American economy had, for all intents and purposes, stopped functioning. Factories were closed. Banks were closed. Unemployed workers wandered the streets. Farmers stood outside their foreclosed property. And for one of the only times in our nation's history, there was a palpable sense in the air that if something was not done quickly, something, that there was a chance of a violent revolution in the United States. The American people, sober, law-abiding, conservative people, were at the ends of their ropes. We saw that in some of the, uh, the Bailey and Kennedy reading. These are, these are unlikely revolutionaries, revolutionaries in suits and ties. The American people... There was a sense among them that they were just not going to accept the unacceptable status quo any longer. As Roosevelt took his inaugural address out of his pocket that March day and began to speak, he faced what only one president before him, Abraham Lincoln, had faced, a direct threat to the survival of the American nation. That nation, FDR said that day, asks for action and action now. And no president has ever acted so quickly and decisively or captured the hearts of the American people so quickly with his air of fatherly confidence and calm determination as Franklin D. Roosevelt. The sense that he gave them, cultivated especially during his radio addresses, known famously as his fireside chats, was that he was the personal friend of the average American, that he cared about him, that he knew the Depression wasn't his fault, and that he'd see it through with them. Now, it's one of the ironies of American history that this man, who was born to such wealth and privilege, who went to Groton, who went to Harvard, who went to Columbia Law School, and incidentally, uh, 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 his grades were abysmal there. Uh, as I may have mentioned, I, I also went to Columbia Law School, uh, uh, and I once uh, checked out Roosevelt's grades uh, in the university archives out of curiosity. Uh, I and about 90% of the other graduates of that school uh, can say that we, uh, we did better academically than uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt. Uh, uh, Columbia Law School is not the only thing that he and I uh, share, incidentally, besides being from New York. FDR is a man who had never had to work a day in his life. If he didn't want to, I mean, he became a politician, but if he wanted to lead a life of leisure, he had the money for that. Uh, he smoked his cigarettes in cigarette holders. Okay? He drank sherry. Right? So this is a very, very sophisticated, upper-class, patrician man. Now, how this man could be so beloved by the poorest of Americans is almost incomprehensible. Yet, this is exactly what happened. No American president, I think before or since, was so embraced by the so-called forgotten American as was Franklin D. Roosevelt. Now, someone once said, a worker was once quoting, uh, quoted as saying, you know, FDR is the only president who understands my boss is a son of a bitch. 
And that may have been the key to Roosevelt's popularity, his empathy with the average American. And as I said, ironic in terms of his very, very rich background. Has anybody ever been to Hyde Park, which is uh, Roosevelt's estate? Okay. It's, uh, it's a pretty rich-looking place, huh? Yeah, it's a beautiful estate on the banks of the Hudson River, and that's, you know, that's where he's from. So it's ironic that Hoover, who is a poor kid, basically, who works his way up from the bottom, is considered to be in the hands of the fat cat millionaires. And Roosevelt, who is born rich, is considered to be the champion of, uh, of, of, of the common man. It's very interesting. American history is full of irony. Now, Roosevelt, uh, as, as I said, acted immediately to attack the Depression in a blizzard of legislation known as the Hundred Days, uh, which comprised the bulk of what, what historians have come to call the First New Deal. Now, FDR's strategy during this First New Deal was, ironically, similar to his predecessor Hoover's strategy, in that he thought that by reducing production, he could stimulate demand, raise prices, and end the Depression that way. Although, in a critical difference from Herbert Hoover, Roosevelt also included direct relief measures for the poor and unemployed that uh, Herbert Hoover had refused. Now, there were many pieces of First New Deal debt legislation with many uh, uh, letters in their names, and they're certainly uh, in, the, uh, in the textbook. But for now, as an overview, what you need to know about this first New Deal of 1933 and 1934 was its general philosophy to end the Depression by cutting or reducing production. And I'll illustrate this by talking about the two most important pieces of New Deal legislation. Uh, 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 legislation that created the AAA, the Agricultural Adjustment Administration, and the NRA, the National Recovery uh, Administration. Now, these laws and these agencies, fittingly, sought to attack overproduction in the two major sectors of the American economy, agriculture and manufacturing. The AAA passed in 1933, Agricultural Adjustment Act that created the Agricultural Adjustment Administration, paid farmers subsidies not to grow crops, to take land out of production, to, in an incident given great play uh, by the newspapers of the day on humanitarian grounds to slaughter farm animals. The papers decried all the poor, innocent little pigs who were being put to death in an effort to create scarcity and thus stimulate demand. Now, one of the great laws of history, one of the great laws of life, is the law of unintended consequences. And unintended consequences certainly flowed from the AAA. Because since farmers were now being paid to produce less, they needed less help on their farms. And they began throwing farm workers, tenants, sharecroppers, off their land. Now this was, of course, a special problem in the South, where many of these people, these tenants and sharecroppers and laborers, were African Americans. They were the losers here because the subsidies... Uh, that the uh, landowners got never benefited them. They were supposed to get a part of them, but the landowners never really gave them much or anything. Forced off the land, African Americans came north in large numbers during the 30s and 1940s and beyond in a huge social, economic, and demographic shift that would affect American history in ways FDR could never have anticipated. Now, the other half of the first New Deal's attempt to attack overproduction concerned uh, industry, manufacturing. In the National Industrial Recovery Act of 1933, the so-called NRA, National Recovery Administration, was created. Now, instead of giving direct subsidies to restrict production, which is what the AAA had done with farmers, the NRA relied on voluntary associations of businessmen in various industries. They would sort of group up in various industries. All the steel people would supposedly get together, all the auto people would supposed to get, to get together. You know, they would group together, and then they would set levels of production and prices and wages and hours of work. They would, you know, they would sort of get together on this. Now, these codes of fair competition, which is what they were called, were supposed to eventually match up production levels to consumption levels and end unemployment. But 
despite tremendous positive publicity. And the NRA was sold to the American people almost like World War I was, as some sort of patriotic crusade. And we could see some of the photographs even in the textbook illustrating this. It didn't work. And the reason I think it didn't work is tied up with the nature of the American system of free enterprise. In free enterprise, businesses compete with each other. And since the NRA was voluntary, it was inevitable that at some point, businesses that were supposed to be cooperating with each other would start cheating, so to speak, stop cooperating, and start competing. And this is what happened to the NRA. By 1934 and 1935, uh, as the economy failed to improve substantially, businesses started to try to evade the codes of fair competition that they had supposedly agreed to in an every-man-for-himself scenario that uh, is typical of the American business system. By the time the Supreme Court found the NRA unconstitutional in 1935 as an illegal restraint of trade, it was clear to Roosevelt that it had failed and that trying to limit production voluntarily would not cure the Depression's ills. Now, up to now, FDR's proposed remedy for the Depression, restricting production, seems to resemble Herbert Hoover's. But there was also an element of human compassion in the first New Deal that was missing from Herbert Hoover's program. FDR is credited with being the first modern liberal, the first to argue not only that the federal government has a responsibility to help run the economy as a whole, but to also argue that it has a responsibility to provide directly for the welfare and benefit of the poor and unemployed through social service assistance and jobs programs. And this, when you add the idea that government should not intrude into the personal behavior personal lives of Americans is the essence of 20th century American liberalism that FDR and the New Deal and the Democratic Party essentially created. So accordingly, the first New Deal also provided for direct aid to poor and unemployed Americans. The Federal Emergency Relief Administration, FERA, a lot of letters, a lot of alphabet uh, letters here, uh, FERA, created in 1933, funneled some $500 million, which is probably about $5 billion today, uh, uh, to poor Americans, which is, at the time, the largest such, such transfer in the nation's history. And the federal government also established itself as the employer of last resort for unemployed Americans through the Civilian Conservation Corps, the CCC, which put them to work on what we would call today environmental projects. Also, the Public Works Administration, PWA, which built roads and bridges and schools. And a little later on in the New Deal, the famous WPA, Works Projects Administration, uh, which built much of the, even the present infrastructure uh, of this nation. For example, you can't travel more than five minutes in uh, any direction in New York City for example, without encountering some WPA project. The New York City got a huge amount of WPA projects. Now, at its peak, the WPA employed about 30% of America's jobless population. That's a huge number. Now, in doing this, in setting up the federal government as responsible for social services and employment, uh, 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 the New Deal and modern liberalism also set up a debate between liberals and conservatives in America about what the government should be doing for individuals, about the dangers of overspending. These programs, of course, cost a lot of money. A debate about deficits, about balanced budgets, and about the impact of large government bureaucracies on individual freedom and liberty in America and their effect on individual initiative and self-reliance in America. Now, this debate, which came out of the New Deal and the Great Depression, continued throughout the rest of the 20th century and was, along with the question of racial equality, I think the most important question Americans had to face during this time. In fact, in many respects, American political history from 1933 on consists of the arguments between various groups of Americans over this legacy 
of the New Deal and what to do about it. And so we will be saying much more about this issue in the future. But for now, we just need to understand that it was FDR and the New Deal that put these issues and these questions on the table for the American people. Now, by 1935, although FDR was personally very popular with Americans, his portrait was up uh, uh, in, in, in millions and millions of American homes. Certainly not Herbert Hoover's was not. Uh, Roosevelt's pr uh, program of restricting production uh, was not ending the Depression, as he had hoped. So this most flexible of men, if something doesn't work, he once said, try something else, but above all, try something. It's a very flexible man to try to try decided to try something else. And taking his cue from the British economist John Maynard Keynes, K-E-Y-N-E-S, Roosevelt began to attack the Depression from another angle. Not by restricting production this time, but by stimulating consumption. By, in effect, putting money in the pockets of the American, average American. Money that he would spend, being a spendthrift American, which is pretty much what we are. Remember the 1920s, a lot of spending. And this spending would increase demand for American industrial products, which would, in turn, cause more production and, finally, more employment. Again, this is exactly, I think, the idea behind uh, Bush's uh, economic stimulus plan that he's trying to get through Congress, this one $150 billion economic stimulus package where sometime in June or July, uh, millions of Americans are going to get checks for like uh, from 1000 to 1500 bucks. They'll go out you know, and, 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 you know, and, and, and spend it on consumer products uh, and stimulate the economy. At least that's the idea. And this is the idea behind the Second New Deal. And this Second New Deal, which Roosevelt uh, launched in 1935, uh, uh, took as its premise the idea that it was possible to spend your way out of a depression. An idea taken for granted today, even by Republicans. No, Bush is obviously not a Democrat, he's a Republican. But it was an idea that was very novel for its time, for the 1930s. Not least because it introduced the heretofore forbidden concept of a deficit, a permanent government deficit, uh, a permanently unbalanced budget, uh, which was... Uh, in, in, the, in the context of the 1930s, uh, almost unheard of. It was John Maynard Keynes, who I mentioned briefly earlier, the British economist, who was arguing that this was not only uh, okay, but actually a good thing, because you could get out of depressions by government spending. Now, let's talk about the two major prongs of the Second uh, New Deal. Uh, uh, but actually, before I do this, I should discuss how, aside from its emphasis on consumption rather than production, the second New Deal differed from the first New Deal. Now, by 1935, FDR was turning towards the left, uh, turning away from working with American business, as he tried to do in the first New Deal, especially with the, the NRA, uh, these voluntary associations of businesses, and towards confronting business directly on strict workers versus bosses, class conflict lines. Now, in part, this turn towards the left by Roosevelt represented pressure uh, uh, on his left flank by those such as Huey Long, uh, uh, we read about uh, for today, and even the Communist Party, which, not surprisingly, gained a lot of strength during the 1930s, who wanted major redistributions of wealth in the United States, not merely trimming around the edges, taking from some, giving to others, redistrib redistribution of wealth. It's always a major, major topic uh, in American politics. It's not always referred to that way, but that's pretty much uh, uh, what's on the table. Certainly the John Edwards campaign. Uh, now he's not going to use the word redistribution, but that's really what he's talking about. So there's always a strain of that in American politics, and there certainly was uh, during the Second New Deal with Franklin D. Roosevelt. And in part, Roosevelt's turn towards the left also represented his desire to ingratiate himself with constituencies such as labor and white, in, uh, white ethnics and intellectuals who were essential to his 1936 re-election campaign, which he won overwhelmingly in 1936. But Roosevelt's turn to the left 
1935 was also, I think, a reflection of his own shifting perspectives about the fundamental changes that had to be made in the American class structure if there was to be true freedom and true equality in America going forward and true class peace. FDR knew that most Americans were not revolutionaries, that they basically wanted to make it into the middle class, that broadly amorphous class of fundamentally secure, respectable uh, uh, people that comprises uh, so many of Americans uh, today. And Roosevelt wanted to make that middle class status a real possibility for as many Americans as possible. Because although he himself was called a revolutionary by some of his conservative critics, Roosevelt really wanted to save capitalism, not destroy capitalism, by modifying it, not replacing it with any sort of socialist alternative. Except for the Tennessee Valley Authority, more initials to TVA, in which the government uh, directly competed with private uh, utilities in the sale of electric power in the Tennessee River Valley area, uh, Tennessee, uh, Alabama uh, uh, area, very impoverished region, which was a unique experiment and not repeated elsewhere, FDR favored private enterprise and free associations of individuals with government intervention only when absolutely necessary. In this, he went a lot further uh, than his critics on the right, his conservative critics, would have had liked, and certainly not as far as socialists, communists, and other advocates of radical redistribution of income on the left would have liked, like, let's say, like Huey Long. But in the end, Roosevelt satisfied the majority of Americans who did, thanks largely to FDR, become eventually members of the middle class, although this may have taken uh, World War II and its aftermath to uh, accomplish. And, as FDR well knew, people in the middle class are not revolutionaries, at least not serious and sustained revolutionaries. So, FDR swung towards the left in 1935 in his second New Deal in large measure because he had a vision of a middle class America, one that was stable and decidedly non-revolutionary a liberal means, so to speak, to a rather conservative end, and one that, thanks to FDR, millions of Americans uh, found it to be, uh, it came true for millions of Americans. Okay, now, the two major elements of Roosevelt's Second New Deal, which aimed at increasing consumption, the Social Security Act and the National Labor Relations Act, or the Wagner Act, uh, named after Senator Robert Wagner from New York, its sponsor, both of which were passed in 1935. Now, the Social Security Act was the first attempt by the federal government to set up a system of old-age pensions financed by contributions from both employers and employees. Those of you, uh, when you start earning, or if you have already earned uh, paychecks, you see what's taken out, uh, 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 paid into a central fund. Uh, now, you read about the so-called Townsend Plan of old-age pensions that sparked a grassroots movement in this direction uh, starting in 1933, named after its uh, major advocate, a retired doctor named Francis Townsend. Uh, and FDR, in the Social Security Act of 1935, basically stole this idea. He co-opted the idea. The Social Security Act also provided uh, uh, for uh, aid to unmarried mothers with dependent children, a program ended by Congress uh, in the 1990s. Uh, that's when uh, Bill Clinton said it's the end of welfare as we know it. That's, that, that, that's what he was referring to. Also, the Social Security Act uh, had assistance for the disabled uh, and for the unemployed. Now, this landmark legislation, which is the foundation for what we call today the welfare state in America, was, aside from its humanitarian aspects, and obviously it helped a lot of people, a way to get money into the pockets of Americans so they would spend it and thus stimulate the economy. And the other major part of the Second New Deal, the Wagner, or National Labor Relations Act, had a similar purpose. The Wagner Act gave American workers the right to join unions of their own choosing and obligated employers to bargain with them in good faith. Up until 1935, they had no such obligation. We talked about the struggles of American unions in the early part of the century. 
The Wagner Act created the National Labor Relations Board, NLRB, to supervise this unionizing process and gave it the power to cite those who did not comply with the law for unfair labor practices, and that's still around today. Now, this act, the Wagner Act, which has been called the Magna Carta of labor, does everybody know what the Magna Carta is? Okay? You know, like the... Uh, the, the, the who, who, who can describe the Magna Carta for those? Yeah. Um, in British history, it's when the nobles all got together and limited the power of that, that we have basic, we nobles, I mean, it's the first really democratic document uh, uh, that we draw from as well. That we nobles, uh, uh, we have certain rights and the, and the king cannot take these rights away. So, uh, in a sense, the, the, uh, the National Labor Relations Act is called the Magna Carta of Labor because it's for the first time it gives labor certain rights that no one can take away. Now, this act, like the Social Security Act, was also, aside from its humanitarian aspect, designed to uh, stimulate consumption by giving Americans more money. Because, as FDR surely knew, uh, unions would use the Wagner Act to organize, and once organized, they'd get raises from their employers. And this is what happened. The same year the Wagner Act was passed, 1935, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, or CIO, also came into being, not coincidentally. The CIO used the Wagner Act to do what heretofore had been considered to be impossible, and we talked about this. It organized the unskilled workers in the major industries of the nation. Auto workers, steel workers, glass workers, rubber workers, textile workers, uh, miners. Remember how the AFL refused to organize these workers. And the CIO unions not only got the employers to recognize their unions after, of course, a great deal of violence and struggle, but also got raises from these employers. And this put more money into the circulating economy. Now, as always, FDR's motives here were mixed, and this is a very, very difficult man to figure out. Some of our Bailey and Kennedy reading from, from Eleanor Roosevelt, his, his wife, uh, gives you that, that, that sense that you can't figure this guy out. Uh, Aside from trying, as I said earlier, to forestall the possibility of revolution in America by absorbing working class Americans into the national constituency and starting them on their way to respectable middle class status, Roosevelt also wanted to reward labor and to absorb it into his political coalition. And indeed, he did this, making organized labor unions an essential, and perhaps the essential component of what came to be known as the New Deal Coalition, an alliance of reliably democratic voters from the ranks of unions, uh, urban ethnics, meaning uh, non-Protestants, uh, middle-class liberal professionals, government workers, obviously they owe their jobs to FDR, minorities, and almost incongruously, the Democratic South, uh, 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 and this is a coalition that made the Democratic Party dominant in national politics in the United States from the 1930s well until uh, the 1970s and even 1980s, until basically the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980. Now, on the subject of the rather incongruous South, the part of the New Deal coalition that doesn't seem to fit with the others, we should mention that the New Deal, while it helped many poor people, did not help all poor people. And its legacy was an especially disappointing one for African Americans. FDR needed Southern votes to pass his New Deal legislation uh, in Congress, uh, much of which uh, was, as you might imagine, uh, uh, made Southern legislators very uncomfortable. Any change would make these very, very conservative men very uncomfortable. So FDR had to buy the votes of Southerners, white Southerners, for his New Deal legislation by excluding farm workers, which included most Southern blacks, from both the Social Security Act and the Wagner Act, meaning they got no old age pensions under the Social Security Act, uh, and they couldn't organize into unions. Not to mention many African Americans as a said earlier, being forced off their land by the AAA subsidies to white farmers for non-production. And when you add to this FDR's refusal to back a federal anti-lynching bill and his acquiescence 
in the segregation of the New Deal programs in the South that blacks were at least eligible to participate in, we can see that the New Deal was not much of a deal for blacks, nor was it for Mexican Americans, many of whom, of course, were also farm workers uh, and who were also subjected in the West to blatant job discrimination and in some instances forcibly repatriated to Mexico. FDR, who believed that economic issues took precedent over racial issues, refused to jeopardize the New Deal and his coalition. Blacks, after all, could not vote in the South and uh, in the North, as FDR surely realized. Uh, blacks had no realistic alternative in the Republican Party uh, to voting for him. Uh, Roosevelt refused to uh, uh, jeopardize uh, his New Deal legislation for what seemed to him as the unattainable cause of racial equality. Roosevelt himself was not a racist, but he felt he was being realistic about the way America was and that the cause of racial equality would have to wait. And, it, and, and in fact, it did have to wait until after World War II and after Roosevelt's death. And of course, we'll be having a lot more to say about that. Now, by 1937, the legislative portion of the New Deal, the first New Deal and the second New Deal, had pretty much run its course. FDR's so-called court-packing plan for the Supreme Court, while it failed in its immediate objective of giving the president the right to appoint more Supreme Court justices, did, in a practical sense, scare the Supreme Court into holding both the Social Security Act and the Wagner Act constitutional. One justice, whose name was Owen Roberts, uh, uh, lost to history but actually a very important man, conveniently switched his vote at the very last minute for a five to four majority that upheld the Social Security Act and the Wagner Act. That was called by pundits the switch in time that saved nine, meaning nine Supreme Court justices. Uh, 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 and, and this prevented major structural change on the Supreme Court with its elderly conservative uh, uh, justices. Supposedly, Roosevelt basically was out of ideas if, uh, 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 if the Social Security Act and the Wagner Act was shot down by the Supreme Court. He basically privately admitted that that was about it. You know, he, need, he needed those acts to be held constitutional because there, were, there was nothing, nothing else in his bag of tricks, which would have been a very, very bad situation for the country. So those narrow majorities, those, that switch in time that saved nine, uh, may have saved the American nation. And by 1937, the New Deal's legislative aspect, its legislative edifice was basically finished and secure. But did the New Deal end the Depression? Well, not really. In fact, a new recession in late 1937 would wipe out many of the economic gains of the previous years and push national unemployment up to about 20%, where it basically was when World War, I, World War II started in Europe in September 1939. And it was really this war that did what both the production restrictions of the first New Deal and the consumption stimulation of the Second New Deal really could not do. And that is, start the economy moving again, with demand for industrial production rising and jobs now available. By the end of the war in 1945, unemployment was down to an amazingly low 3%. So you've got like 20 to 25% unemployment uh, only, only eight, years, eight years earlier. 3% by 1945. Perhaps proof of the old saying that the war, war is the health of the state. I mean, that's a famous saying, war is the health of the state, which is a sad commentary, of course, but unfortunately uh, often true, at least in economic matters. So, if the New Deal by itself didn't end the Depression, what did it do, and what was its legacy? Well, for starters, while the New Deal did not end the Depression, it is clear that without the New Deal, the Depression would have been much worse than it was. And had it been worse, it is questionable whether American democracy could have survived. After all, look at what depression in Germany, for example, produced. Nazism. And there was the other totalitarian example of the Soviet Union at that time as well. Between them, Hitler and Stalin murdered about 15 million people. That's not even including World War II battlefield casualties. Now, the New Deal may not have created prosperity, 
but it did keep the United States going as a democratic nation, uh, 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 so that America was at least in a position to take advantage of the opportunities for prosperity when they did arise at the end of the 1930s. The New Deal also left a lasting legacy of the federal government as the protector of the poor, the weak, and the worker, the supplier of social services, and the employer of last resort, that defined political dialogue in the United States for the rest of the 20th century, and defines it today. The New Deal also left a legacy of government involvement in running the economy, of responsibility for the economy, that we also take for granted today. Even Ronald Reagan, although he defined himself as a free market Republican, could not roll back the New Deal legacy of government involvement in the economy. He could only trim around the edges and curtail the further growth of some of its programs. So, if the 1960s defined America today culturally, and I think that they did, and of course I'll be getting to that part, then the 1930s and the New Deal defined America politically and economically, and continues to do so. The questions, the issues it raised, are still with us. As for FDR, he left a legacy of expanded executive power and a presidential cult of personality, which also defined other presidents. For the rest of the 20th century, uh, 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 we defined our presidents as celebrities, as individuals, as people. Bill Clinton, for example, as a person, was as much of an issue as his actual policies. George Bush, as a person, is as much of an issue as his actual policies. And that's FDR's legacy as well. FDR also left a legacy of an expanded government bureaucracy not to mention expanded government spending levels and expanded government deficit levels, that also defined American politics for the rest of the 20th century and on into ours. And finally, thanks to Roosevelt and the New Deal, for the rest of the 20th century, Americans would argue over, to, to quote directly from the textbook, FDR's central idea that a powerful national state would enhance the pursuit of liberty and equality in the United States. I'll read that again. FDR's central idea that a powerful national state would enhance the pursuit of liberty and equality in the U.S. Roosevelt, for better or for worse, and of course for many conservatives it's for worse, created a constituency for the idea that the government was good and that business was bad and selfish, exactly the opposite of the 1920s, and anti-business atmosphere and culture in the United States during the 1930s that was extremely influential for the rest of the 20th century and is still influential today. Uh, maybe you could think about that when you think about waiting for lefty, uh, which is what I had you read for today. Think of the contrast also to the 1920s. The question of what would best guarantee freedom and equality in America, the national government or the free market, would motivate Lyndon Johnson and Bill Clinton and Ronald Reagan and Newt Gingrich and countless other American leaders long after FDR's death in 1945 and would be Roosevelt's ultimate legacy, an intractable question without simple answers, one that will be occupying much of our time as we continue our journey through the American century.